Where do we begin? I hesitated to record this. Well, I shouldn't say I hesitated to record this altogether. I hesitated to record this on my platform, the Protectors Podcast. I am a whistleblower. I've talked about this a million times. I've talked about it here. I've talked about it there. I've talked about it everywhere. Uh, The thing is, there comes a point in your life where you have to really talk about things. Now, I've been a whistleblower. I've talked about it. And like I said, I've talked about it on here before, but I kind of glazed over it. I didn't tell my whole story. I didn't tell the dirt of it. I didn't tell the, the effect it had on me mentally, physically, my career. I've kind of glazed into that a little bit. You know, my career wasn't stellar after I blew the whistle. And it's not on any fault of my own, but just on the circumstances. I want people to understand what it's like to be a whistleblower. What it's like to step forward and change your life. I'm not going to edit this. I'm going to just speak the truth I know. So if you hear some pauses, you hear some me clearing my throat or anything else, I'm going to leave them in there. But here's the deal. My name is Jason Piccolo, and I am a whistleblower. I never wanted that title of whistleblower. I mean, I've wanted a million different titles other than whistleblower. I first had the title of soldier. That was my first real title. PV2 Piccolo. U.S. Army, 13 Bravo, Canning Crew member. That was my first title, soldier, or private, PV-2, Mosquito Wings, Piccolo. Later on, I had Cadet Piccolo when I went to ROTC. Then I had Lieutenant Piccolo, Butter Bar, Second Lieutenant Piccolo, then First Lieutenant Piccolo, then Border Patrol Agent Piccolo, then Special Agent Piccolo, then First Lieutenant, I said First Lieutenant Piccolo, then Captain Piccolo, then Resident Agent Piccolo, then Officer Piccolo, then Supervisory Officer Piccolo, then Detention and Deportation Officer Piccolo, then Associate Special Agent in Charge Piccolo, Senior Intelligence Advisor Piccolo, uh, Professor Piccolo, and Dr. Piccolo. A ton of different titles. One I never wanted to have was whistleblower. And it goes back to, you know, what's instilled in you when you take an oath. Now, there's been a lot of civilians, a ton, a ton, a ton of civilians that are whistleblowers. And I really commend them. They never had to take an oath. They never said, hey, you know what, when I'm going to take an oath and I'm going to I'm going to serve my country. No, they served in other ways. And by them blowing the whistle, they, they're giving back to the greater good. But when you take an oath, and I believe that's another thing, I've taken a million different oaths over the past 30 years. When you take an oath, 
you have to live with that oath. And it continues on. It continues on to this day. I am retired from the federal government, retired as of March 31st, 2023, but I still feel an obligation to speak, to talk. And now I feel even more of an obligation to talk about being a whistleblower, to talk about stepping forward and just making a decision and and taking that step without hesitation, without true hesitation. So let's let's go back into who I am. I'll get into the whistleblowing, and then we're going to get into why I think I, I made the decision I did and other ways I've blown the whistle over the years, other ways I've never talked about online or on here about my previous agency, the Environmental Protection Agency. We'll get into a little bit of that, but there may be eventual litigation, so I'm not going to talk too much into it. But here's the deal. In 2015, I was assigned to the Department of Homeland Security's White House Security Council's human smuggling cell. I was one of about 13 members. And at this time, I was working for the Immigration and Customs and Service, Immigration and Customs Service, Enforcement and Removal Operations. I was a detention and deportation officer at GS-14. And our charter, our business plan, our goal, and I know this because I helped write it, was to disrupt and dismantle the smuggling organizations, primarily bringing a lot of unaccompanied alien children, now referred to as unaccompanied migrants or unaccompanied children. The names changed over the years. But stopping smuggling organizations from bringing so many kids up. And this is 2015. The crisis at the border is crazy. It's always been crazy. But around 2011, 2012, there started to be a really massive influx of children coming across the border. Uh, children, um, tender age babies on all the way up to, you know, I believe 17 or was a cutoff, but a lot of children, hundreds of thousands of children over the children over the years. And while I was assigned there, I discovered that children were being released to criminals, including sex offenders. And I found this out through what a spreadsheet. Now, Let's just, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of what was going on and, and the, the minutiae involved with the blowing the whistle. But the reality was the U.S. government was releasing unaccompanied children to criminal sponsors. And the process of children coming across the border and everything is a little convoluted, but uh, and simply the child comes across the border. They're taken into custody by a uniform officer, either the Border Patrol or Customs of Border Protection. ICE processes them. Then they go to Health and Human Services Office, Office of Refugee Resettlement. They're handed over to a contracted facility. The contract facility then releases them to a sponsor. A sponsor is, it could be anywhere from a familial relation up to someone who doesn't even know the child. And at the time, 2015, there was no vetting of the sponsors, meaning no fingerprints, no interviews, no in-depth interrogations of who's taking custody of this child. It's nothing like the foster care system. And I, I know nothing really about the foster care system, except that the process to take a child is a lot more than just, hey, I'm here. Let's have the kid. And that's just very simplifying it. That's simplifying it to the, the lowest degree. 
But the reality was we were releasing them to children. I found out, I mean, we were releasing them to criminals. I found out about it. I raised alarms with my supervisor and management all the way and up and it fell on deaf ears. So I legally blew the whistle, didn't leak to the media, went to the office of special counsel's website, did a little research, a lot of research. I had to figure out, you know, who to go, who to go to, what information to provide them. I provided them all of the information and I blew the whistle. You know, at the time, understanding that my kids, I think were six and eight. So knowing that children at that age were being released to criminals, it didn't sit well with me. It never sit well with me. And it, to this day, it doesn't sit well, well with me. But when I blew the whistle, it went on deaf ears and I kept going back and forth between the office of special counsel and health and human services, trying to get them to fix the system, to fix the broken system. I found out about this information about the children in August of 2015. The information I got was from July of 2015. Uh, by the time October rolled around, health and human service was going back and forth with me, back and forth with me. And I'm supposed to be anonymous at this time. And eventually I decided to go forward and tell my uh, legal counsel at Office of Special Counsel that I wanted to just do an anonymous, quote unquote, anonymous debrief with Health and Human Services and discuss what I saw, what I know, and how I know it, and my, rel my relevancy to the issue. And when I did that, I did, I asked for a list of all the people who were working for Health and Human Services. Uh, just I knew who was on the other line of the phone. They didn't know who I was, but I did leave some designators involved with the community in the phone call that I wasn't smart enough to think that I was very trusting. Let's just say that I was still a little trusting that people wanted to do the right thing and that there wasn't people out there that were really facetious or really just, just not good people. But in there, I mentioned that I was a certified fraud examiner and that I was involved with the human smuggling cell. Well, they put two and two together and figure out there's only one CFE there, certified fraud examiner, and that was me. The next day I went to work, the next business day I went to work, my detail was terminated and I was sent back to ICE headquarters. And at that point, I started noticing weird things. My cubicle was always messed up. Like people were kind of, not always, but like shuffling around all my paperwork. I didn't keep anything there. My Outlook files, email files were all corrupted. Uh, just little things. And they put me straight smack dab in the middle of the bay so they can keep an eye on me the whole time. My career was over with. And I was lucky, I should say lucky enough, that at the time, I might have seen the writing on the wall. I think, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, man, I better get out of here. I picked up a job with the Environmental Protection Agency as Associate Special Agent in Charge. They didn't know I was a whistleblower. I'd like to say later on that uh, probably about two months after I got the job and they initially hired me to take over. Um, I was supposed to be the associate special agent in charge. And then from what they told me, I was supposed to take over for a, uh, an assistant director of operations at one time. Uh, but I think they pretty much found out I was a whistleblower when I started talking about, you know, the vetting of sponsors and everything in the media. And they gave me permission to talk to the media, but my career was over with. Things happened over the years with the EPA, and 
doesn't matter what administration was, Republican, Democrat, whatever, I stepped toward and went back to the Office of Special Counsel. I went back to them and I provided information to them. Uh, but I knew my career was over with. I knew as soon as I hit 50, I had to get out. And hence, Harry, I'm talking to you today about being a whistleblower. But people are always asking, why did you become a whistleblower? And I always, I always tell the story about my brother, Michael. You know, that's another title I love having, you know, brother. I mean, I had, I had two brothers and I love being a brother. I loved it. I mean, they were more a parental influence than a lot of people who were in my life. Just good people. Now, I took care of Michael over the years. And if anybody's ever read anything about me, they'll know his situation. Uh, his, his issues with uh, narcotics abuse that essentially destroyed his heart. And eventually, Mike ended up in jail. He ended up incarcerated. And right after this was right, pretty much right after I got back from the war. And I remember getting a call and having a voicemail. And it was a lieutenant from the from the the place he was being held at. And it says, Your brother's dead. His body's here. I mean, he didn't say this in a voicemail. He said, he said, call, call when you get in. So I, I called and uh, I'm thinking he probably got in a fight. Something happened. He's probably in the hospital. And he wasn't really, a, I mean, he was a boxer. I mean, he was a golden ghost pro and really good fighter, but not really a violent person per se. But when I called the, the lieutenant said, yeah, your brother's dead. His body's here. I just broke down. I mean, how do you deal with that? Now I remember going to the hospital. And at this time, my brother was estranged from my whole family. My nieces uh, didn't talk to him. My one niece was like nine months pregnant. My dad didn't talk to him in years. My other brother didn't talk to him. I was the only one to talk to Michael. So I had to call and do all the death notifications. But I remember my dad's blood pressure spiking and almost dying. And he's in one room and my dead brother's in the other. And I remember my, I remember my mom telling me to go over and, and just make sure that he's dead. So I did. But what happened was the jail left another message, said I had to come and pick up my brother's stuff. So I went there and I, the warden was there and I said, hey, you know what? Uh, I didn't have my badge and credentials with me because I just got back from the war. And I had to turn all that stuff in before I, uh, geez, sorry, uh, before I had to go to war. Cause I mean, and the government's smart, you know, they take all your gear in case you get killed over there. They don't want to have to come and try to find it later on. But when I went there, talked to the warden, I said, Hey, look, you know, I'm especially, can you tell me more about what happened to my brother? Cause my brother had a heart condition. He was monitored by health officials. I mean, I was bringing him to the doctor all the time and, the thing was, he died on a basketball court. And anybody who's played basketball knows it's pretty strenuous. And he had a heart attack before he had stents. There was no medical monitoring of him. And he dropped dead of a massive heart attack on a basketball court. There was no medical oversight of him. 
And it stuck in my mind, like the warden didn't give a shit about Mike. didn't care about anything. He was sitting there. He knew I was coming in and this was a days before social media. This was days. Before, I mean, this is 2007. So they had no idea who I was, but I remember getting his bag of stuff, a literal plastic bag. They took everything out of his cell dumped it into a bag, including his commissary. So he, I remember this to this day, he had his Bible, a pair of pants, a belt, uh, letters, and a box of cheeses. They literally dumped a box of cheeses into there. But I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, if there was someone in that jail that knew my brother had a health condition and needed to be monitored, wouldn't they provide oversight? Maybe if they stepped forward and said, Hey, look, this guy over here has a heart condition. He probably shouldn't be out doing this. We should probably check his medical out. Uh, maybe we'll release him into a different type of facility. He wasn't in there for a violent crime. He was in there for failure to pay child support. It's another story, but it's not like he was like a career criminal, but he died. And I always stuck in the back of my head. And I've always wondered like, about doing the right thing and being a whistleblower. Now, later on in life, I took a job with the media and I, the biggest thing about doing the media and the biggest thing about this platform is being able to have a voice, to be able to talk about things that matter, to be able to get out of the mainstream media, be able to talk and tell people what they need to know in order for them to make informed decisions. So I'm recording this today, imploring anybody that wants to step forward, anybody that wants to take that step and shine a light on things that matter. So many people that have stepped forward as whistleblowers, and there's so many of them right now that are coming forward are doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it for the right reasons. You're never going to get rich off of being a whistleblower. And I can't even imagine how many cases don't, you don't like, I, like I sued, I sued when they, I went to Congress. I went here, I went there. And I tell you what, when you sue, the government will come after you. They will discredit you. They will do, they will get their senior counsel and a crew of people to come after you and do whatever they can. By the end of the day, you'll know that you made the right decision. But you're never going to be rich from being a whistleblower. I'm just telling you that right now. The thing is, you're going to have to make a critical decision. You're going to have to make a decision that will change the trajectory of your life. But at the end of the day, and this goes out to all the other whistleblowers I've talked to, at the end of the day, they always say, I would have done it again. And I would too. I still talk about it. I, I still talk about what's going on at the border. I still talk about the vetting of these sponsors. I still talk about all of it. But you have to understand that there's going to be consequences for coming forward. But I think there's a different consequence. There's a different thing about coming forward. At the end of the day, I could look myself in the mirror. At the end of the day, I know I did the right thing. 
all these people in power and all these people who have kept positions or made money and wealth off of doing the wrong thing, they know what their legacy is. They could probably look themselves in a mirror, but I guarantee you there's a special place for them. And the thing is, if you're going to blow the whistle, do it the right way. Cover your ass, document everything, notebooks, write timelines, write a timeline of everything you know and document it. Send yourself an email, time, date, stamp it, record videos, but document it, document, document, document. Remain as anonymous as you possibly can. Sometimes you'll have to step forward. You'll have to provide testimony if that's what needs to be done to get the things fixed. You're seeing it right now with a lot of these government whistleblowers coming forward. And you're seeing what's happening to them too. These could be the most non-political people in the world. And one party is going to go after them, whatever the political narrative is. So you have to understand that. Can you affect change? By blowing the whistle. I did for a little while, at least. For a little while there, Senator Grassley had government accountable for. They were vetting sponsors. They were doing all sorts of good stuff. Not so much anymore. But it's about doing the right thing. When you see an injustice, you have to step forward. Do it safely. Do it safely. Do it safely. I have to always repeat myself. It's like the, the infantry thing in me. So I'm saying this because I am a whistleblower and I'm not going to hide from it. But I want people to understand that if they have information that they believe is going to be relevant to affect change or to even just bring anything to the forefront of the public knowledge or to the regulatory agencies, or to the enforcement agencies, or to anybody that needs to know it. It's okay to be a whistleblower. And there will be people out there who will call you a scumbag, a snitch, or whatever. Who cares? Who cares? The people who are in your corner, the ones who truly matter, will stay in your corner. The ones who don't, you'll find out right away who they are. Absolutely right away who they are. And they'll be out of your system. They'll be out. I lost what I thought were good friends. And it turns out, I mean, these are people I did, you know, counter drug operations with, knocking down doors, going through all sorts of stuff. And I knew right away that they were not who I thought they were. The handful of people over the years that I know uh, who know me, who know I'm a whistleblower and who I've worked with, I'm still friends with them. And I guarantee you, if they saw some shit going on, they would step up. But you're also going to find out that there's going to be people that have had the same information you have who never step forward. And they have their own reasons for that. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with consequences. But when you're making decisions, especially about blowing the whistle, make informed decisions. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. And legally do it. 
And at the end of the day, it's, it's a title, but it's one of many titles you have. Many, I guarantee you, you have way more. Some of you probably have way more titles than I do, but that's, that's what I wanted to say today. One of my titles is whistleblower. Best title I've ever had in this world though, is father. And nothing else really matters other than being a dad. Some of you'll know that, but one of the best titles I've had, and that's one of the reasons I stepped forward is thinking about kids and what's happening out there. Anyway, thanks for listening to me. And if you ever want to step forward, just think about it. I'll always answer questions. Thank you, everybody.